And welcome to The Dark Word. As always, I am your host, Philip Fracassi, and I have a, I always say this, but it's true, I have a very special guest uh, for this episode, and we have a ton to get to, so I'm just going to go right into it. The Dark Word is a podcast about writing, writers, and those who read those writers. The goal of this podcast is to focus on the profession of writing, whether it be the creative process, the business side of things, or simply offering advice on how to be a pro. We'll be hearing from some of the best in the business over the upcoming episodes. And true to our name, The Dark Word focuses on writers who tend to hang out in the shadowy side of the room. These are the names you think of when you hear horror, suspense, noir. The names who have chilled you and thrilled you. So follow me down this dark hallway, because there's someone I'm dying for you to meet. Dying for you to meet. Dying. With me today is Chuck Wendig. Chuck is the New York Times bestselling author of Star Wars Aftermath, as well as the Miriam Black thrillers, the Atlanta Burns books, and the Heartland YA series alongside other works across comics, games, film, and more, a finalist for the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer and the co-writer of the Emmy-nominated digital narrative, Collapsus. He is also known for his popular blog, TerribleMinds.com, and his books about writing. Chuck, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you. No, that's, see, that's an old bio. Dang it, Amazon. Is it old? It is, yeah. It doesn't wander. Is it a book of accidents? I w- yeah. I was going to use the one on your website, but that mentioned a book that was like came out a couple of years ago is coming up. So I, but yeah, 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 fix it, <laughs> we'll fix it off screen. Yeah. But that's yeah, Wanderers uh, is was your was your big doorstop novel that came out a couple of years ago. Wayward is the book that's coming up. Book of Accidents came out I think last year. That is that correct? Yeah, I think so. Time means nothing to me anymore, so that sounds great. Copy that. Um, so what I really loved were your books. I, 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 I read most of both of your books on writing and I know you have a lot of books on writing, but damn fine story and a thousand and one, um, ways to write good fiction, get published, etc. I thought those, and I'm not blowing smoke. I thought they were the two best books I have read on practical writing that I, you know, and I've read a lot of books i read all the you know the save the cats and the story and all that kind of stuff but i thought these were so fundamentally uh spot on and so before we even get into it i usually do this at the end of the show but i'm gonna do it at the head of the show after we're done talking anyone who's listening go buy these two books and read them cover to cover because thank you yeah they're amazing i actually i actually suggest getting them on kindle because that way you can kind of cut and paste stuff and you can highlight stuff that's important to you so Let's talk about writing. And I think one thing that's interesting is that you in one of the things that you do in your in your books is you you actually separate writing and storytelling as sort of two different things. Yeah. Um, meaning and I think the best way to the way you, way you put it is that writing is the vehicle through which the story is told, right? Right. And all right, so let's talk a little bit about writing first. And um, I think the, the the things that stuck out to me, maybe you can just elaborate on these things. I'm just going to kind of go shotgun bullet or machine gun approach on some of this stuff because there's so much I want to talk about. Is um, the one thing you said that really struck out to me is don't be boring. Yeah. Because that is something for me. The way I think of that, where the way I translate in that in my own head is when I'm writing something, 
if I start getting bored with the story I'm writing, or if I start feeling like it's not exciting me, then I know that the reader is going to feel that way. And so I take a step back and I say, okay, what can I do to turn this a different direction, find a new perspective? Can you elaborate a bit on what, what that means to you? That's I mean, Honestly, you nailed it. That's precisely what it means to me. I try to write um, in a way that is somewhat uh, experiential to the reader, right? So like I'm not, there's writers who are far smarter and more capable than I am who can write out of order. Uh, but I not only can't because I don't know that I can hold that much in my head, but also I like to um, write in order so I can sort of establish um, a rhythm and a pacing that the reader is going to experience. So if I'm not following along with that rhythm, then I feel like I'm kind of getting out of the groove and I don't know where the reader is going to experience that or how they're going to experience that. So um, for me, it is always kind of about trying to envision what the reader is going through and, you know, being quote unquote boring, which I mean, I know is like a subjective, you know, term in a series of teleporting bullseyes. But I mean, if you, the writer, like you say, are kind of feeling like there's something here that's just not engaging you, then there is a chance that, yeah, it's not going to engage the reader as well. And so at the very least, there's value in trying to consider, is there a way to reframe this piece that you're writing that um, captures them in some way, that captures you first, because if it's capturing you, the guy who right. already knows what's doing on the page, like you already know the story. So if you can surprise yourself and entertain yourself make yourself think or be upset or something like that, then that's a good bet that maybe you can bring uh, that to bear uh, for the reader as well. Yeah, because I think a lot of stories, and I guess I'm maybe referring a little bit more to short fiction, but I feel like a lot of stories, sometimes you feel like it's a bit of a been there, done that, or or maybe it just kind of feels like the writer is kind of getting you from point A to point B, but there's no real, you know, there's no real juice to it. And so I think sometimes, and you know, I think it's also a little bit about surprising yourself as, I think it's two things. I think it's one, it's kind of surprising yourself as a writer, which is fun. And it's always fun for the reader. And the other thing is, um, uh, you know, uh, being daring, not being afraid to take chances. Yes, precisely. Um, so you, you mentioned rhythm, you, you mentioned this in your book and I thought it was really fascinating because, um, and I kind of tie it to a writer's voice, but you just kind of mentioned a rhythm or a pacing to writing and it's a kind of a style question, but, but, uh, can, can you elaborate a little bit about your thoughts about like what it means to have a good rhythm to your, to your writing, to your prose? Yeah, I mean, I think um, both in terms of the actual mechanics of writing and also the nature of story, there's ways that you can interact with the reader that are kind of um, invisible. Like there's all kinds of stuff. I, I, in Dan Fine Story, I use the metaphor of like a house. There's things you see in the room, but there's all kinds of stuff that's behind the walls that we don't see that are worth considering as a writer. And so, um, but in the mechanical side of things, the shape of prose on the page can really matter. Um, a big giant paragraph versus a series of short dialogue bits just read differently they, to your eye. And, right. um, you know, uh, one is sort of an accelerator and one is a sort of a pressing the brake pedal. And neither are wrong. Sometimes you need to be accelerating. Sometimes you need to be slowing down and sort of sitting over what's happening on the page. Uh, and then that also translates, too, to how story works. Like the idea that, you know, sometimes the story needs to be moving more quickly. Sometimes you're... Um, invoking tension here, but then you're releasing tension there. Sometimes it's just about how there's these buildups of expectations with the characters and what they're going to experience and what they're uh, going through in a horror novel or in a thriller novel, or if there's going to be something funny and a, a punchline payoff coming. Um, and trying to then, you know, the real fun part is trying to make sure that the, the mechanical writing, the style on the page, the shape of the prose on the page, the words you're using, the length of sentences, things like that mirror 
um, the effect that the story is supposed to be having uh, on the reader's emotions and brain, right? So if you want stuff to be fast and exciting, then writing a big, you know, one paragraph on a giant page is going to be like one of those things that's bogs them down and not necessarily conveying the intended result. Not to say you can't, there are ways to do that that are really cool, but you have to think about the pacing of the sentences and the sound of the sentences as people read, um, you know, the story in their head, because even if it's not an audiobook, there's a sense that all books are kind of audiobooks. Like we hear them to some degree in our heads. And so it's just sort of kind of coupling all that stuff together and, and thinking about rhythm, and not necessarily obsessively, but tinkering with it as you reread it again and again. And one of the things that I use as a uh, kind of a key tool for me is, is literally reading the work aloud uh, because that's right. just those beats and those, those little bits of, um, you know, rhythmic tuning, you, you know, you might need as you go. Yeah. And I think the, the reading aloud thing is something I don't do enough with my prose, but I, what I, I do do it when I write a screenplay and I think it's probably similar to, to prose is that it's very helpful with dialogue as well as reading dialogue aloud can sometimes <laughs> help yeah. you realize if it's, if it's right or not. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, and, and so that's, yeah. So I think, you know, I, I was thinking about examples as you were talking and I, and I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying it, they're extreme examples, but I, like, I remember reading, um, I remember the first time I read a James Frey book, you know, mm-hmm. and he writes like every, every, you know, he, he doesn't write in paragraphs. He writes in short sentences and each sentence is a new paragraph and each, any sentence is usually like no, you know, like five or six words. Right. And he has that very like, da, 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 da. So James Elroy is another example. He's got that, you know, da, 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 da stuff. Yep. Um, Josh Mallerman writes with that sort of, you know, staccato, like um, pacing. Yep. And then you guys like John Langan, oh, yeah. for example, who really take their time and, but the prose is really beautiful and you kind of get immersed. Yeah. Right. In that world. It's and then there's guys like thick. Yeah. 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 And then there's guys like Laird Barron where you feel like you're walking through a dark, wet, you know, cave when you read them because there's so much dripping prose and, and um, so yeah, those are all like really fascinating different examples. I think if you guys are listening, I want to go check some stuff out of different styles that I, I, Chuck, is there anything you would throw in there? That's kind of an extreme one way or the other that you might think people might want to check out. Um, I mean, it's very silly and it's not horror at all, but um, you know, rereading okay. uh, James Joyce is an interesting experience because you go read some of the earlier stuff, either, some of the short fiction or a portrait of an artist as a young man, but then you go into like something like Ulysses. Um, right. And the, the way the prose really does look on the page is, is, is different from book to book, but also uh, has wildly different effects on the pacing um, as you read that stuff aloud. And of course, some of the stuff you read aloud in James Joyce is already uh, a little, a little deranged just if you, you know, get into um, Finnegan's wake for, then it really, you feel like you're, you know, yeah. When you go from Dubliners to Ulysses, it's an extreme, it's an extreme shift. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Kerouac was sort of similar, like when he was oh, John, sure. right. Yeah. With town in the city, which is a very standard novel, which is my favorite Kerouac novel. But then, yeah, then next thing you know, he's writing on scrolls of paper. Right. Um, okay. So another thing that you mentioned about writers that I thought was really interesting, some of the stuff I read, was you talked a little bit about, uh, how writers are forged over time and, I thought this was interesting and it was kind of to me too, because like you're pretty much at the age where I kind of started my professional writing career. Uh, And, um, and before that I had written a lot of like literary stuff. And then it was kind of when I was like my mid forties, I was like, I'm going to try and start writing genre stuff. And then like everything kind of clicked and came together. But, and so, and so for me, it was kind of like a combination of like all the stuff that I had read and written that was very literary and very character driven, but not necessarily uh, genre or plot driven. 
uh, stuff. And then kind of combining that with, um, you know, some of the more uh, fun elements of supernatural thrillers and horror and stuff like that, kind of like, I think, mushing those two things together. So that was my kind of journey. But can you talk a little bit about like, like, I think, you know, how, when a, for a writer who's just starting to like, how you see the progress of a writer getting to where you, I know, I know we're continually learning and adapting, but when you say that writers are forged, can you elaborate a little bit on that for yeah. people listening? I mean, I think, and like at the basic level, I mean, a writer is made by writing, but I mean, that's just not something that happens overnight. And I think starting out, we really want it to be like, we really want it to be like, I wrote this thing and now not only does the career, but like I figured it all out. I finished a story, I finished a book and now it's all, it's all clear. And I don't, yeah. I just, that's really, I don't, in my experience, not true. I mean, I'm sure for some writers it is. There are some writers who are like, I wrote one book, it was amazing. And now I know who I am, but uh, that was not me. It took me 10 years in freelance. And then it's been 10 years now of writing novels. And uh, so, you know, just over time, there's just all these things that happen to you as a writer, both in life, but then yeah. as you write, as you read more things, as you experience criticism and reviews and, um, uh, you know, rejection, tons and tons of rejection, every, every rejection, as much as everyone's like, rejection is hard and sad and upsetting, and it totally is, and it totally should be. But um, at the same time, it's a shaping experience um, right. because there are rejections you get that you hate and there's rejections you get that you totally understand. And there's sometimes they flip and you're like, I, no, wait, I, I think that one was wrong and this one was right. Um, just over time, all of that stuff, you know, gets its fingers in and kind of works the dough a little bit. And as that happens, you become the writer you're meant to be. And there's so much, I think early on as a writer, we try to force it so much to figure out like who we are. Like the first, I talk about the first like five books that I wrote before anything was ever meaningful or published, um, were terrible. And they were really me chasing someone else's idea of a novel. They were me chasing, you know. Uh, the writers that I really liked and they were me chasing what the market um, thought was currently popular or trendy in some way. And I was just writing books that didn't feel like my book. Um, And so there's this whole thing where you're, you know, I spent so many years and so many, you know, hundreds of thousands of words trying to figure out and find my voice when really I kind of had the voice all along. I just didn't know that. And so sometimes it's just this weird circuitous labyrinthine journey to just figure out who you actually are. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. For me, when I started writing a genre fiction, it was a kind of an ex- it was kind of a journey of like finding out what my voice, you know, for lack of a better way, put what my voice was and trying to figure out what I and also what I what I what I wanted to be for myself. You yeah. know, what kind of writing I wanted to do, what kind of stories I wanted to create, and that's kind of an ever evolving thing, obviously. But and I think to the also the point about you know like a fine wine. You know, writers like everybody else, we age, we experience things. And also, I think through rejection and through that sort of stuff, but also I think we gain empathy. Yeah. You know, you learn more about people. You learn more about, um, you know, all the, you know, all the things that life brings, you know, with death or sickness or joy or success or failure. And I think it humbles you to an extent when you're a little bit older. And I think, it a lot, I think sometimes it seeps into your writing. And your journey, to your point was interesting i was going to ask you about it is because you know you started with the the mirror black books and then which were kind of one thing and i read a couple of them and then like but then lately you know and you kind of did a, you did you did like a series a series of series if you will and then you kind of got into the um uh you did some ya stuff mm-hmm. and then you but then lately it seems like you're kind of forging a little bit of a different model like you're kind of doing these larger standalone um you know epics in a way or you know not standalone novels is that something that was just part of your 
growth as a writer or is that something that you're doing purposely or what's 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 behind that yeah, it's it's kind of a few things number one it's just something yeah i do feel like i i definitely want to do now but it's also um something i it wasn't as easy to do when i was starting out like uh, in terms of what people were buying at that time they were really looking right. for a series and shorter things and so it's hard to come out with something like wanders but i mean even something like wanders a book of accents book of accents is a book i tried writing twice before for the last 20 years um and uh, just <laughs> terrible efforts uh hopefully until the current effort which hopefully was not terrible um but like i just wasn't the writer to write th that book and i wasn't certainly not the writer to write wanders i mean wanders was a product of both me in time and both the time that i was in if that makes any sense so yeah um, it's just not a thing i could have written then but then the sort of young weird anger of something like the miriam black books was was something that was <laughs> right. you know just sort of that was who i was they are angry yeah it really only made sense to me when i figured out that i kind of needed to figure out who i was like like just ex experiencing that idea of like like when I went to write Blackbirds, right after these failed kind of trunk novels, so to speak, um, I was kind of at a hit bottom point in terms of what I thought I could do with my writing career. I was, you know, I had done freelance for so many years before that. And I was like, you know, I'm done. I'm going to do this one more thing. And then I'm going to decide if I really even want to do this anymore. Like, I'm going to try it and see how this works. And this time, like, I'm going to try it in a way where I don't care as much. Like I, I was like, you know, let's like, t what's all the safety equipment on this machine? Let's start ripping it off and just right. drive this rickety fireball down a hill and see what comes up. And so I, you know, I tried to embrace the things that I thought were funny or fucked up or whatever it was. I wanted to figure that, that stuff out. So I, I really wanted to write a book that was more me in some capacity, not in a way that was like a quote unquote, Mary Sewer, you know, author insert character. I wasn't trying to write a book literally about me and my life, but just something that right. like, there's, I got all this stuff inside me. But what if I just grab a bunch of it and put it on the page instead of trying to, carefully articulate to a market or carefully articulate that uh, this authorial voice is what will sell a book. I just stopped caring about selling a book. And ironically, that is when I sold a book. Yeah. And that goes back a little bit to your point about chasing the market or chasing trends. It's, it's not really something that's going to work out. I mean, I think you have to just kind of, because I, and I've talked about this on previous, you know, episodes with different writers, where as you talk about, I think, um, I think what people want to hear more than an original story or more than, you know, something that's going to necessarily, you know, change their lives as far as a plot is concerned, is they want to hear an original voice, right? They want to hear a voice that they haven't heard before. And I think from, I think it, I think writers need to embrace their voice, yes. you know, because, totally agree. because that's, what's going to differentiate because you're the only you. Yeah. You're the so only you. you do, There's no original yeah. voice. You're, you're the, but the person who you are and voice can go, it'd be such a fiddly thing. It's not necessarily just about you know, how it comes across in a sentence, but the things you choose to put together in that original, unoriginal story, right? Those like elements that you pluck from right. the sort of the vast, you know, uh, cosmos of possible ideas that already exist and how you arrange them is kind of part of that voice because it's speaking to some, you know, notion of who you are. It's like, if you pick up a pen and just start doodling, that's like a thing that without thinking about it, whatever that is, is something more interesting than like, kind of like, well, I'm going to try to ape this painting or ape this um, image that I've seen. So I think in fiction that really tracks. So it's not just about um, a literal prose styling, but um, also about, you know, the choices you make in a story. Yeah. You know, I said this, I've, 
I had Lisa Morton on early last season, and and I've and I've repeated this anecdote a couple of times, but I think it's worth repeating again because I think it's such a good point. Is we were talking about anthologies and invites, and and I, I said, do you hate it when you get a very specific anthology invite? Like you have to write about a very specific topic. Do you feel it's constricting? And she said, no, I don't feel it's constricting at all because I kind of embrace it because what I think of is I'm going to I'm going to write about that topic and. And it's it's not just going to be another story. It's going to be a Lisa Morton story. Right. Um, it's going to be Lisa Morton's take on this topic. And I thought that was such a great kind of encapsulation of what it means to kind of like write to for yourself. Yes. And be true to yourself as a writer. So one thing you said that I thought was really, really interesting, um, uh, switching gears a teeny bit, is you talked about reading critically. You said, yeah. don't just read, read critically. Can you elaborate on that? Because I found that I find that fascinating. Yeah, actually, I have a... Uh, not to overplug, but I, I have a writing book Plug. next summer called um, Gentle Writing Advice, which is sort of a sort of tackling, you know, how we deal with writing advice in this current era and how we live uh, as a writer in weird, turbulent times. But one of the things that goes into that book, one of the pieces of advice is that I sort of tweak the idea there that it's not just about reading critically, but also just about reading mindfully. Um, mm. You know, this idea that writers should or should not read, you know, the, the real thing is that we need to read uh, mindfully in a way that is an active reading. We're trying to figure out like, as we read what's happening, right? Like not just like what's yeah. happening in the story. I don't mean plot what's happening. I mean, like how, if I feel a certain way after a chapter ends, well, yeah. how did that do that to me? Because that's like, you just hacked my brain as a writer. Yeah. So yeah. what did I, what part of my world seized onto what part of that world and how can I achieve that also as a writer? So just, you know, finding those things. Like if you love a character, well, then why do you love it? It's not, I mean, it's not so simple as like, well, they're just really cool. I mean, that's fine and good and everything, but there's something there to how that character is articulated, how that writer puts them on the page that is, it's not necessarily worth aping, but it's trying to figure out like the many options available to you as an author. And, you know, all of those options are there in books um, that have, have been written for hundreds and hundreds of years. I mean, just you know, we published yeah. a massive uh, proliferation of books uh, week to week that, you, you know, you wouldn't even have to go very far back to just sort of experience the, the massive opportunity uh, available on the page. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It, 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 this is a little, it, you know, we're not necessarily concerning character, but concerning, I guess, in a way, um, prose or style. I was reading, um, I was rereading for like the third time. I was rereading Pet Cemetery. Oh, yeah. And, and I just sat down and started reading it because I was like, and I literally blinked and I was like on page 20. Yeah. And I, and I stopped this truck. I swear to God, I stopped. and I was like, wait, what the fuck just happened? Yeah. And, I, and, I went, and I went back and I re and I looked at, I didn't read. I looked at the pros. Yeah. And I was like, why did I get sucked in so fast? Yes. And it was really fascinating because I don't know if he still writes this way. This, we're talking about Stephen King in case you don't know. Um, but I noticed he had like, uh, he had more semicolons in the first, there are more semicolons in the first 10 pages of Pet Cemetery than I think there are in entire novels currently. Oh, that's and it was, it was oh. really neat because he just kind of like, and I was like, why am I not stopping? Yeah. And he was just kind of like, oh, and then that, oh, and then that, oh, and then this. Like he wasn't like, I'm not going to period you. We're going to like, we're just taking a little sip and then we're going to keep, keep oh, yeah. going. A little it, sip of a bear. It's like Mario Kart. Like you're hitting the patches that keep accelerating you forward. Like you can't. You can't turn the thing off if you wanted to. Yeah, but that's one thing that's really fun about, to your point, is reading mindfully. Is it, Or if a character affects you, why did that character affect you so much? And stuff like that, I think is so fascinating. Um, all right, so let's get into st 
storytelling. I have, I just, I'm going to skip some other stuff I wanted to talk about, but um, because <laughs> I want to get to it. I'll come back. So, okay. We'll do it again. It'll be fine. Okay, great, great. Uh, so storytelling. Okay, the one thing that you kind of hit on, you kind of hit on it a few times, and I thought it was um, super interesting, is you talked about disruption. You talked about how a story is an interruption of the status quo. Yeah. And um, I'm and, and my favorite metaphor, and then I'm gonna let you talk about. It. I'm not just gonna repeat your words to you, but I love that you um, said a story is like a broken bone. With it comes pain, but also the chance for growth. And stories are about change, are about change. So can we can you touch on that? Because I think that is so interesting. And, and and if you if you wouldn't mind, also tie in um, your thoughts on where you start, where starting a story is not necessarily up to the reader. But up to the writer because I think it kind of ties into the same storytelling bullet point. Yeah, I uh, you kind of see it right when you read a lot of writing from young writers or new writers that there's kind of a lot of uh, I don't want to say nothing happening, but there's a lot of there's a lot of status quo happening. This you know here we are, this is what's happening now, and it's it's setting the scene. But then um, it kind of doesn't always get to the break, and you know stories exist for a reason. I mean, it sounds like an obvious thing to say, but like. Something has changed. That's why we're here uh, in, a, on a, in a story. Something right. is different now, and everybody's going to have to deal with that. And so there's this constant sense of like, you know, even at the start of a story, whether it's on page one or page 10, somewhere right in that beginning, something has shifted. Something has, that, that bone has definitely broken. And now we've got to figure out what happens going forward. And it's always character driven. It's always about how, you know, characters have these expectations of life. They, they want things or they need things or they, uh, you know, they experience a problem. I talk about problems a lot as being a sort of a driving um, thing to think about in a uh, damn fine story. And a problem is really just a break in the status quo. Like we experience them daily. There's something has gone wrong. Um, and that something has gone wrong. That very idea is really the sort of impetus behind <laughs> Storytelling, it's sort of, it's a, uh, you know, why that is, I don't know. Is it because we're, you know, as readers, we're looking for, you know, empathic bridge because things are always going wrong for us? Or is it just because right. interesting? We just simply like a, a disruption. Like we like a line that breaks. I don't know what that is, but, you know, a straight line is often quite boring. Um, and so storytelling is best when it is not that. Yeah. And I think it's like, it's one to your, I mean, I guess what, yeah. Another way to say what you're saying is like, if, you know, people live happily in a house for 20 years and then one day the house explodes, we don't need the 20 years. Yeah. You know, let's, let's start with the, the, start let's start, with, not the end of it. Yeah. 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 And then let's find out what happens, why the house exploded and all that good stuff. Right. And, um, okay. So, and then I think another thing that you, I want to talk a little bit about as it come as it pertains to story. And I thought this was really interesting is you talked about, um, and this gets, that gets a little bit into character, but you talked a little bit about how big ideas are shown through small stories. And you talk about a single character's experience through a story is better than the 30,000 foot view. Not that necessarily every story needs to be written in first person, but what can you get into a little bit about how a big idea is shown through a small story? Yeah. Um, well, that's how we experience them. I mean, right. As, as human beings, right. You look mm-hmm. at a pandemic which as it turns out, we just sort of are experiencing and, and you know, are going through uh, continually. Um, w- what matters about that is not the pandemic. The narrative of the pandemic is probably not that interesting, but the narrative of the individuals experience the pandemic are. Uh, everybody's got a different story. I mean, you talk to people, you know, when, right. you, when you talk to people about what they've seen and experienced, um, did someone die, did someone get sick? Like, their experiences are unique, uh, while also shared. Like there's, and an, again, that empathic bridge with other people. 
Um, but seeing this massive thing, this somewhat cataclysmic, catastrophic thing happen through an individual's eyes is what both makes it interesting on a sort of a crass, shallow level, but it also what makes it human. Like, otherwise, it's just kind of data, like the moving of information and the moving of viral particles is fascinating, but not really a, a story. Um, and so anytime we have the chance to distill uh, big things down to, you know, human eyes, because it's what we understand, like we get, it's why, you know, again, in sort of newer writers and younger writers, sometimes you see characters who have these, you kind of either see one or two things, right? You either see characters who have, uh, or are encountering a massive problem, the galactic empire, right? As if that's really the important struggle, the galactic empire, right. massive thing. Right. Or they're right. characters who, uh, you know, have these convoluted problems. These like, oh, I'm a wizard and I lost this magical spell. It's just like kind of, you get two in the weeds when you're like, really, like there's these core fundamental things like love and jealousy and spite that we understand as people. And so really finding those kind of, you know, big uh, core ideas and, and emotional experiences is what everybody's going to relate to. And so that's what you want to write about. People are going to respond to that really well. Yeah, I think you you used the um you used Star Wars as an example in your in your book and I thought it was really interesting talking about I mean cuz really that story what people think about when they think about Star Wars is Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. Yes, they don't think father about and son. Or, yeah. or uh, Han Solo, a guy who owes debts or you know a princess who, you know, want, is trying to escape uh you know oppression and save people like that she loves. I don't know, like and she watches her all her people get killed. Like it's just sort of like there's some stuff there you can grab onto and totally understand and then of course in the prequels you get trade federations and it's like and i'm out i don't, I don't <laughs> right. that's not really a thing i'm super into trade federation. yeah it's like sometimes when you're reading a book and it's, you get and you're and you're learning about this character and then all of a sudden they kind of take a, a break and they're like okay well now i'm going to kind of give you an overview of what's going on globally and it's kind of like ah, i don't care i just want to know what's happening to that dude you know or that right. lady or, or that yes. family or um and uh you know i think is a good example of who did a very good job with it i thought is uh paul tremblay in survivor song oh um, absolutely where he really he did not give a shit about what was happening globally i mean it was re it was it was meant but it was almost like he almost kept it as a mystery even to the characters which i thought was really fascinating because you didn't you only knew what they knew and it was almost scarier because they were like we don't know what's going on we just know it's chaos you know what i mean yeah and, and that my world has just turned upside down. Yeah, the pandemic was like that for everybody, right? Remember the first days, no one knew what the hell was going on. We were all bleaching our vegetables. <laughs> no one knew. It was like, oh, it's just absolute. But that's like exactly kind of it. The mystery of it, the experiential component of it. Yeah, uh, Paul is is great with that in general. Cabin at the end of the world is certainly the same kind of way. Like, if yeah. something is going on and we just only have our individual lenses into it. And that's huge. Yeah. He really, right. He really sucked it down into that microchasm of like, we're just staying in this room guys. So nope. the TV is going to come on, but we're not going to really know what nope. it's showing. Um, all right. So I want to segue into characters because it's something that, uh, again, I caught, caught my interest reading your take on characters. And it's not something that I've actually really seen anyone have this particular take before. Um, you also mentioned quickly, cause I think it's important. So when you talk about story, one thing that you get across, uh, in your books is that, you know, for lack of I'm paraphrasing you, but advice is sort of bullshit, right? Yeah. And structure is sort of what you, and like, if you read a book on structure, you take what you want and, and you don't take what you want. And then there's like, no, but 
And you kind of mentioned the save the cat thing. I thought it was interesting when you talked about your characters, like you're like, yeah, they should save a cat, but also, and you kind of mentioned as your give a fuck factor, we know yeah. we want to, we want to care about the characters. What, what are some, what are some tips that you could give writers about ways to get readers to empathize with their characters? Uh, the chief thing in, I think, um, damn fine story that I kind of cleave to. And I, I think it's still true now is like, giving them a problem that we understand is just huge. Like from the get-go, we, you know, right. when you talk about characters, sometimes with, with writing advice, it's like, Oh, you need to do this like Cosmo style interview of like, who are they really? And what are their wants and their needs and their fears? And it's not to say you are not um, rewarded by uh, d diving into that. But if you give um, almost a nobody character a problem that I understand on page one, I'm probably going to be interested. You're still going to have to build right. them out. But I mean, that that core problem, I've lost something, someone is hurt, uh, I'm dying and trapped. Just these like very simple, uh, you know, I have a problem and I want to defeat the problem um, is just the, the most common impetus that we have as human beings, right? Like there is a problem ahead of me and I don't know how to deal with it or I do know how to deal with it, but there's things preventing me from dealing with it. There's a story uh, that unfolds from that. And so many, I think people get either kind of in their heads about like the deep dive on character. And again, there's really nothing wrong with doing a deep dive on character. I just mean like you're trying to really like it, to get people invested in it. There are some simple sort of brushstrokes that get you there and then you kind of fill in the detail as you go. So I think sometimes newer writers miss that. And I think other times they let the plot overwhelm the characters. And so suddenly there's this sort of exoskeleton grafted onto the story as if the plot is everything. And the characters are mostly just like kind of Plinko balls moving through the pins. Yeah. They're the mouse in the maze, right? Yeah. And you don't want that either. You want them to be literally designing the plot as they go. Like characters are, you know, I would say plot is Soylent Green. It's like, it's made of people. The characters are doing things and saying things in pursuit of, uh, you know, solving their problems and plot happens as a result of it. It's just simply what they do in, in the sequence of events. That's not to say there's no reason that you, the storyteller, shouldn't or can't be thinking about how those problems orchestrate in a way that is satisfying to the reader and, you know, in printing. So, again, that rhythm that we talked about at the top of the, the episode um, yeah. But just giving your characters problems and then setting them out to solve it and then getting in their way. It's almost like being a dungeon master and being sort of cruel. Like, well, you're in the dungeon now and I'm certainly not going to make it easy for you to find the treasure. Like, uh, that's just the easiest, simplest sort of way to, to lens how that works uh, as a writer. Yeah, I thought I had Rachel Harrison on earlier and um, she wrote a couple of wonderful books called The Return and Crackle. And, and she talked about how she really she's in a really writing like first person and she talked a little bit about it. I don't want to, I don't want to put words in her mouth or paraphrase too much, but she was basically saying how like, she loves the idea of just getting in that car of that character, you know, that vehicle that is that character yeah. immersing herself in that character's world. And then just, and then she just kind of sees where it goes. You know, she has a broad outline, a vomit draft or whatever, but she just kind of like, she just wants to see what that character does. And I thought that was a really fascinating perspective, you know, a, a different way to sort of look at, oh, I, I want to say one thing, which I think is very, because uh, we mentioned save the cat and this is totally a little bit off topic, but I don't know if you've seen the movie, the Kingsman, the first one. Oh, the first one. Yes. So in the first Kingsman, in the first 10 minutes of the movie, the protagonist, the main character, the hero, he literally saves a cat. Yeah. And I was in the movie theater watching this movie and I laughed out loud yeah. because he was like this rough, 
roguish British, you know, thug. And then he'd like stopped it. And he literally saved a cat in a tree. And I was like, that is the laziest piece of shit screenwriting I've ever. I read. love that. That's, you know what? If you're going to be it, just <laughs> right. embrace how lazy you can be. <laughs> right. um, okay. So we, you touched on this, but this was, this was the, this was what I was getting to earlier. And I, but I wanted to stop at, for a, a drink at that other place is um, you talk about antagonist and protagonist and you, and, and I'll let you, uh, you know, I don't get, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, but how characters are complex, but also how, um, and how the antagonist is in the way of the protagonist solving their problem. Yes. But one thing that you, one thing that you said that I thought was really fascinating was that you were like, everybody thinks they're the main character. Yeah. They're, you know, everyone in the story th- and the main character is not necessarily the protagonist, which I'd never heard before. Would you mind talking a little bit about that? Cause I thought that was really interesting. Oh yeah. The, on the main character protagonist thing, the, um, I think the best example that I can give for that is Mad Max Fury Road, because Mad Max is obviously the main character in that he is um, in, literally in the title. Uh, but he's yeah. really not the protagonist. It's definitely Furiosa. She's the one who has something to really gain and lose. I mean, he has some very basic bare bones things, the basic sort of freedom and escape sort of, animal like, yeah. uh, you know, leg in a trap kind of a thing. But survival. Yeah. Yeah. He is just kind of piggybacking along this story and, you know, even when there's this great scene when they're in the um, the sort of the mire and they're in the, the dark fog and mist and, you know, he's trying to take these rifle shots and can't make the shot. And then she eventually needs to take the rifle and she uses him literally just to support. I mean, he's literally like a log that she's resting right. on to take, take the shot successfully. Um, so she is the protagonist, the protagonist being sort of an agent of change in the story, being the one who has kind of the, the stakes to gain and lose. Um, and the main character is, you know, sometimes you're Sherlock Holmes. It's almost like a, a Neil Gaiman Sandman, especially for those who are watching Netflix. Sandman is often more the main character, but he's not generally the protagonist in a lot of ways, um, especially in individual stories, individual episodes, um, as mm-hmm. sort of arcs rise and fall. Um, yeah, so I, mean, I, I do think there's something considering about how the characters are not, they don't see themselves as, um, antagonists or side characters to support characters. Like we have them slotted that way as, as writers, as storytellers, but everybody deserves a chance to um, act like and pretend like they're the main character with uh, noble intentions. Yeah. I mean, I think the way you, one way you put it in the, when you're, you know, as you said that, the, you know, and yes, the antagonist is in the protagonist way of solving their problem, but the protagonist is also in the antagonist way of solving their problem problem when they oppose each other and if you usually write any story from the opposite person i mean i don't i mean obviously we as readers would probably still side with one over the other but you know someone does something evil rarely because it's like well you know what's fun evil like i mean it's not to say in real life there are not people who are (laughs) just glad to do malevolent terrible things and i'm sure that can still work in fiction but i just think generally speaking if you're going to create a level of complexity um, in your characters, especially one that doesn't need to be mirrored by reality, because fiction and reality are, can, can often be miles apart in terms of how much they need to reflect each other. Um, but if you want that satisfaction, that, that kind of umami function of characters where they are rich and deep and have a lot going on, then you have to stop viewing them only as an antagonist or a protagonist. I mean, you can think of them that way, sort of at that 30,000 foot view, but when you kind of get down into it, um, there's a whole lot of nuance that makes people very interesting as to how they got to be who they are. 
Yeah, and I think it it also gets into the point made earlier about characters being complex. I think you know, uh, I, you know, I I wrote a book, Boys in the Valley, that's coming out, and people, a lot of people who have read it have said, you know, my favorite character is this Brother Johnson guy because I thought I knew what kind of character he was going to be, yeah. and he really surprised me, and I thought that was really interesting. Like, they, you know, I think that's that's something to think about when for writers who are writing characters is don't make them two dimensional. Give them give them all the good and bad that everyone else has. Um, the last thing, because we're way over time, but I, but I, I want to get to before I let you go. Uh, one thing that you said, and this is something I've always struggled with as a writer, because I, I, for whatever reason, I can't get it through my big dumb head. But when you talk about the greatest thing that you can do for your characters or your story is to give the characters agency. Yes. Can you just give me a? Can you give me a quick your quick take on that? Because I can't. Whenever I hear the words, I don't think your character has enough agency and I'm being totally honest and transparent here, folks. Like I honestly kind of don't know what that means. I, I get that. Like you want them to be more in charge of where the story is going, but is there, but is there more to it than that? Cause it seems to be something that people really, really, uh, you know, keep hitting on. Yeah. Agency to me is the sense that, um, I think I've defined it as a character's ability to, uh, make their own decisions that affect the story. Um, so you're giving them motivations. They're, uh, active more than they are reactive. Uh, they push on the plot more than the plot pushes on them. Uh, the plot exists as a direct result of the character's actions. And I'm, I'm reading that from a blog post, so uh, bear with me. No, it's great. Um, you know, but kind of in simpler terms, right? Like you just don't want them to be like a little boat on a river. I think that can work. I don't, th- I mean, anything, obviously that's why writing advice is bullshit, right? Because anything can work. If you write something well and in an engaging way, anything, literally anything can totally work. But Right. Um, in terms of just giving your character agency, which I think is satisfying for you as the writer too, um, is not giving them this sort of like plot that is just the river. Like here's the plot and it's going to go this way regardless of whether or not the characters are in it. Right. Right. It just moves. And isn't that going to be awesome? And the Galactic Empire is going to do this. And this particular dragon is going to do this. And it's just this, I think they, this, writers especially in genre spaces get so deep into like the world building kind of like not to say again world building is bad there's no insult to that but they make the world so rigid and so firm that they don't give the characters any chance to change it they don't give them anything to do in that world whether it's a uh, a small suburban town or some you know gigantic you know moon base like you want to give them a chance to to move the river instead of be moved by the river. Sometimes it's better if they're not the toy boat, but if they're the rock in the river parting the waters, like you've got to give them some reason and some interest to be there because if they're not struggling to find agency and choice and motivation, um, then the stakes really aren't there. We don't understand why this matters because what matters to us as people are other people's journeys. And if that journey is not in some way, uh, empathically interesting to us if we can't connect ourselves to it like like Lego bricks that just I think we fall right off of it uh, and nothing really holds together and then it just becomes kind of like a role-playing game manual it's like well I, I can go read the, the Dungeon Master's Guide on my own time thank you <laughs> right. okay uh, we are out of time and there's a great point to end at uh, so uh, uh, Wayward is coming out November 15th correct? that's what they tell me which is a sequel to Wanderers, so go pick that up. Go pick up Chuck's books on uh, writing. I, I think I, I don't know if I said this on the air or off the air, but uh, the two books that I've read of Chuck's are, are, I think, hands down the best books on writing I've personally read. I got the most out of them, and I thought they were the most accurate as to what really goes on with writers. So, guys, go pick up those books. 
And uh, Chuck, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you being here. Great. Hey guys, it's Philip again. I wanted to let you know that you can buy any of the books discussed on The Dark Word at The Book House, which is Book and Film Globe's independent bookstore. Go to thebookhousemilburn.com, that's M-I-L-L-B-U-R-N.com to shop online and support small independent booksellers. Or visit the actual store in Milburn, New Jersey, where you can buy books from all the authors we feature here on The Dark Word or the Book and Film Globe podcast. Audio. Oh,